Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Phil and Rosa Hughes. They are directors and co-founders of Medical Thermal Imaging. Founded in Liverpool in 2008, it became the city's first thermography clinic at the time. Phil, very warm welcome. Welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today and yourself as well, Rosa. Thanks, Scott. No, it's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. It's a real pleasure having the both of you on the air with us as well. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. Um, So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader on its own, first and foremost, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to the both of you and how it resonates. Somebody... A leadership to me is somebody that can be, um, that can delegate, that can delegate skills, um, especially with, with the staff. Um, somebody that has the ability to, to change, to go with, um, not to be flustered if there are any changes put into place. Um, obviously, somebody that can communicate with the staff and with, obviously, patients. Um, take them into the right direction, um, be, but also with a big degree of integrity, which uh, I think matters a lot if, with, with somebody who's uh, leading uh, the shop, if, if you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. And obviously, uh, somebody who is has gratitude for um, staff, yeah. shows them yeah, for, for everybody and also the people that come in that we deal with, um, you know, having empathy with people, especially in our in our industry. Um, yeah, and also um, having great relationships and encouraging staff. Um, sorry. sorry. Mm. No, I completely, completely understand where you're coming from there, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, and I think yeah, it's somebody that has to have an all-round feeling for uh, not just the business, but the people that are in the business and how do we motivate them to lead and how do we motivate them for all of the challenges, obviously, that we that we see and that we experience. So, basically, yeah, somebody who's, who has integrity. And steer the, the ship. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and take control when needed. And you talk about the need to motivate and inspire people as well. That's incredibly um, important. And before I touch on that in just a little bit more detail, I'm interested to understand if there are any individuals who the pair of you have encountered throughout your life and your career who you, you would say have been an inspiration or an influence on yourselves. Well, probably uh, a lot. There's a lady we've just been dealing with now um, who's a, a retired judge and an absolute brilliant example of how one should be. Yeah, I, yeah and, you know, um, how, she, she, you know, she always gives you the feeling of um, confidence. And I think that's a big thing that you've got to inspire in people when you're promoting the leadership of something 
Yes, it certainly does. And um, when we talk about the need to inspire and the uh, the need to motivate, it's all about taking people with you, isn't it? And that takes a degree of people management. We can say that leadership and management are two sort of fundamentally different things. But I think people management, the ability to be able to communicate effectively, those are all elements that are integral to the umbrella of leadership as a whole. And those are issues that have really been thrust into the limelight during this particular period as well with the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and the need for business leaders to feel their way through what ultimately is an unprecedented crisis. And we've seen the impacts that it's had already um, and the fact that people are having to adjust to working uh, from home and leadership from a distance is, of course, having to be enacted now. Um, I'm interested to understand just how it's been for yourselves adapting to the challenges that this pandemic has brought about, because I can imagine it's been very much the same for you in that you've had to adapt um, to sort of meet the challenges that it's really posed? Yeah, I mean, obviously COVID's been devastating to a lot of businesses. I think in some ways we've been quite lucky because COVID has brought into the picture for so many people now the uh, abilities that there are for thermal imaging because what we're doing and we're seeing all around the world is the use of thermal imaging and where it's being described as accurate for changes and new technology. Um, so in that way, I think it's been a benefit that, that w- people are now aware that there is such a thing as thermal imaging and that the thermal imaging is non-contact. So um, from a point of view, was obviously when we went into lockdown, it was a totally different situation, a situation that not only ourselves, but millions of people had never experienced before and still haven't. But when the restrictions to lockdown were eased, we were able to, because of how this works with social distancing and its non-contact, we were able to utilize that in people who are had, had health concerns. We, we were able to look after them in a way by only one person being allowed into the, the clinic, only one person being allowed into a waiting room, and then social distancing, the masks obviously, hand, hand washing, and taking them into a room. So there was always social distancing. And even when we were taking the images because of how this works, the cameras were two meters away from the person. Mm. And it gave us an opportunity as well to see the screen patients um, because of what the cameras do. Um, so to check whether they had a temperature that was associated with COVID before we even started imaging them. Yeah. Something mm. that could reduce the risk so that both the people, well, there was only ever two people in the clinic at the time. Um, so obviously, somebody took the people in and, and the the um, thermographer. But to, to take a fever in the correct way, because the way that... Um, thermal imaging does it is looks at the inner canopy of each eye and it's something called the brain tunnel temperature which is the most accurate way of taking somebody's temperature so you're not getting false positives Mm. 
false negatives. And it, it takes literally seconds and you get the, um, the results up on the screen before the, before the thermographer can continue to do the other images that are necessary. So it's been um, difficult, but a learning curve in many ways. And also, I, I think, um, an introduction to thermography. It's opened, it's opened thermography up um, all over the world because they're, they're all, these cameras are, are in all the airports, they're in hospitals. all the hospitals, they're, they're being used all over the world for fever screening at this moment in time. Mm. So, so what people are getting more aware of what it is, whereas before this, many people didn't know what thermography was. But because they're seeing it on the news all the time, and in newspapers and, and where it's being used, and even in workplaces. I know, I know, in in like car factories, uh, people have to be thermally imaged before they can go in into work. You know, mm. so so in a way, it's it's been it's been good for us. But like like with with any business, if you have to shut down for so many months, you know, it you will feel the impact of that. Um, so. But in a way, um, it might actually turn out in the long run to be to be good for us. Yeah, and, it, and because of the social distancing thing and because of the non-contact with the thermography, we were able to 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 look after people who had real concerns. It didn't um, prevent us from hopefully easing the anxiety that these people had. It's encouraging to hear that it's been positive uh, from that point of view. And I think you're absolutely right that one of the positives to come out of this quite difficult and quite tragic time is the fact that it's forced the hand of business to innovate for sure. Um, interestingly, during this period, there's been some debate about the uh, the leadership uh, from the government's perspective that's gone into handling uh, the uh, the pandemic, not least around COVID secure guidelines, both for those businesses that have continued to operate during this time and frontline services, as well as businesses that are going to be reopening in the coming weeks and are going to now have to make sure that they adhere to new safety procedures. Um, in your case, um, are you satisfied that thus far the guidelines have been clear for yourselves being able to continue operating and they continue to be so? Uh, from a work point of view, yeah, I think you know that they've been, um, we've been guided by by that. But um, I, I just wish that in totality, when we're looking at COVID, that it wasn't just in from one point of view, and that instead of waiting for things to happen, because we're always told that you know, for IE when it was a uh, tighter. In Spain, this happened two weeks ago, and it's going to happen here. Well, if we just carry on and do the same things as Spain did, yes, it will happen here. So why weren't we looking at things, and why aren't we still looking at things that are going to prevent this spike or the spike or the second wave, uh, and use things to boost the immunity, which have been proven in other countries? So... um, from a point of view of the science behind it, I mean, now we're, we're finding the, the science wasn't that good. And I think we need a lot more scope in how we we look at COVID, uh, how, how people can 
not just wait for it. And I think the problem is if we wait for it, we have to treat it. What we should be doing is looking at ways to prevent it. And I haven't seen much of that going on, and that, to me, was a, a big disappointment. And if we think now about what the next 12 months holds for yourself and for medical thermal imaging, what do you envision than that period bringing about and what do you hope to achieve as we move through the pandemic and then into the long-term future under the new normal? Um, I think from my point of view, and now that we're, you know, the, the thermal imaging has been seen by a lot more people, what I would like to happen in the next 12 months is people to understand what thermal imaging is not sometimes what it's portrayed as, uh, because thermal, you know, for some reason or other, thermal imaging is is looked at in the same field as mammography. Well, we do imaging as thermography does scans, but they are not the same. They are two completely different sources of information. Mm. Mammography is a test of anatomy. Thermography is a test of physiology. Now, each one of those, the thermography is an adjunct to mammography in a detection of, of breast cancer. It's not a standalone, as people are led to believe. And mammography is an adjunct to Thermography, because mammography can't see the things that thermography does. Thermography can't see the things that mammography does. But somewhere along the line in the future, you put the two of them together and have both um, an anatomical test and a physiological test together, you are going to get much better diagnostic information. For me, that's where I'd like to go. We're not in competition with mammography. We never have been because, as I've explained, we are not the same. They're two completely but important different pieces of the test give us different information at different times. And we can open up breast screening to the vast majority because thermography is not limited by age or breast density. So we have all these young girls now who are basically waiting until they feel a lump or some sort of an abnormality where the thermography could find the changes and the temperature differentials that show that may show that there is pathology starting. And so if that was to happen, the girls come in, we image them and we find that there is some abnormality there, then they can be referred on to test of anatomy so we get both of the images and a much greater um, possibility of better diagnostics. Mm. It's certainly going to be yeah. interesting to see this sort of route that the uh, the industry goes on uh, from here for sure because I think there's huge merit in exactly what you're saying uh, there uh, Phil for sure um, I also think that given how informative it's been having the pair of you on the program with us um, this afternoon it would actually be fantastic if in the future over the course of the next year we could even catch up and have you back on the uh, the program with us just to assess what exactly has gone on in the time between and to just see where 
the profession is at and where medical thermal imaging is at at that point in time as well. Yeah, we'd be very happy to do that. I just, you know, once again, I don't want to, the biggest thing for me is not to be looked upon as a, um, a challenge to mammography. We're not, we're, we, we, we want the best, obviously, for everybody, but want people to understand that, um, you know, we can't see lumps. Where the benefits are for the profession's recognised as an adjunct to mammography, isn't it? It's not a competitor. It's essentially something else which is vitally important. And both of them essentially complement each other, don't they? It's important that people do remember that. People, people look at things and they choose what they want to do. So mm. giving, giving women a wider choice. You know, I mean, quite often we get women in who have been through breast cancer and have had mastectomies or, you know, bilateral mastectomy, and we're able to still look at their breast health, if, you know, Check. because obviously yeah. they've got, uh, mammography would be obviously ruled out for people yeah. with no breast. And, and women with implants. Yeah. Um, and yeah. also women with, who have found tumours, lumps, yeah. and don't wish them, because... The biggest thing I think when women come in here and why they choose to uh, go towards thermography is for the pain. And we're always getting there. They either have been told that the pain and the pressures that are involved in compressing the breast, it's something that they don't want to experience Mm. or something that they don't want to experience again. And also, without being controversial, the risk of the pressure rupturing the tumour. These are all things that have to be um, considered uh, for sure. And it's about making sure that people do have the option, don't they, um, as well, um, certainly. Um, We are just about, unfortunately, out of time on the uh, the programme this afternoon. But I've got to say, it's been a hugely informative experience having the pair of you join us. And as I said before, I think it would be fantastic to have you both uh, back on to discuss some of these issues again in future and just see how things are transpiring under the new normal. Um, Importantly, however, um, Phil, Rosa, do take care and do stay safe in the meantime time until we do touch base again because as we both well all three of us know i should say we're certainly not out of the woods with the covid19 situation yet and there's still plenty of time for things to change thank you very much and a nice talking to you it's been a real pleasure thanks so much to both of you okay bye bye That was Phil and Rosa Hughes, directors and co-founders of Medical Thermal Imaging in Liverpool. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair, including that of Education Secretary, and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished speaking with him. That is coming up next. 
Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system uh, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way I, i'm not sentimental about this things will revert mm -hmm. but actually i think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility that will be a very positive outcome absolutely now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.